welcome to the London Magazine podcast. I'm Lucy, I'm the managing editor. And I'm Lily, I'm the digital assistant. The London Magazine is a bi-monthly publication. We publish poetry, fiction, non-fiction and reviews. Our August-September issue is out now. You can buy it from our website, www.thelondonmagazine.org. You can find us on Instagram, at The London Mag, on Twitter, at The London Mag, and on Facebook, we're just The London Magazine. And today we're delighted to be talking to Holly Pester. Holly's collection, Comic Timing, was published by Granta in 2021. It was shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Poetry and was selected by the TLS and the White Review as a Book of the Year. She has worked in sound art and performance with original dramatic work on BBC Radio 4 and collaborations with the Serpentine Galleries, Women's Art Library and Welcome Collection. Her poetry has been published extensively in journals such as Poetry Review, The White Review and Poetry London, amongst others. We'd love to invite Holly to read a couple of poems from her collection, Comic Timing. Okay, um, thank you. I'll start with um, Comic Timing, the poem. I went to Ilford on my own walked up a dual carriageway to McDonald's for a cup of tea and a think, then went back to the clinic with half a blueberry muffin in my pocket. I was handed a white laminated square with a number on it. I will be called by my number, not by my name. I lied on the form that asked if there was anyone at home. My Uber arrived as the cramps started. I was told to be home within one hour. The journey time was 45 minutes. I felt nauseous, breathed slowly. The driver talked about ratings. He liked chatty and punctual passengers. He once gave a married couple no stars. When the man hit the woman, I felt dizzy. We drove past his house. That's my house. He looked up my ratings and said I was above average. You must be a nice person, maybe normally more chatty. I tried to sound lovely. I said I was unwell in a weak voice. He joked I would get no stars if I was sick. I go through my to-do list to clean an Airbnb, do it for money. I am a bad maid to Capital's heart muscle. There was one night between guests. I had a plan to lie down with the TV on, eat a Marks and Spencer's cottage pie, sleep on the sofa, wake up, change the bedding, go back to the big cold house I live in and feel treated. I knew what to expect from the last time the pain got acute on a two-hour arc. I had had a hot bath. I had sat by the bath like a bird and held a bundle in my hand, poked about for a god or a plan. What survives a day? But this time there was no build-up, there was no flight. The pain stayed still from the clinic to the brown and honourable sofa, not getting easier or worse. I did not feel anything passing through me, but the room was dark and around me. I woke up at 7am took some painkillers and finished cleaning. I left the key and got the bus, still bleeding on the brink of a big pain, but going nowhere. My housemate was having a party. 
I was very tired, but she is out of sync and soulful. I needed to be dressed and nice. I made a bowl of beetroot puree and hummus. I made a simple butter pastry, grated cheese into it, twisted the dough into sticks. They snapped in the oven but smelt delicious for the people. I greeted them alone, didn't know any of them. The pain stayed still. I smelt real, leaned on the counter and decided to drink. Some of my friends arrived. I behaved normally. My good friend quietly asked me to stop being cruel to her. I was very disturbed, told her I did not feel well. I followed smokers, worried about my good friend's feelings until I found her in the middle of some laughing, doing an impression of a cat scratching a pole. Her movements in a black and white skirt were comedic and expert. She moved like a clown. She swung the lower half of her body left to right. She upped her arms, stopped to look at the room through her hair, then carried on. Clowns invent new grace for limbs out of ungraceful lines in the room. I think I was mid-verb. Like my friend, I said to my head, I am mid-verb. Maybe I have become the verb. I am not having. I am abortive was the last thing I thought before falling onto the purple inhabited bed face down. We have to feel everything in our stomach. Ache is tempo. I have seen millions of films. I get it. Or oh, there is no story, only comedy. But my friend has clowned the time. Her skirt was so stripy. I'm reading it now. A difference between being scanned for a future or past material, for latency or tendency. I am very interested in this, and I am interested in the catch of the bed. Which idea is homeless? What is surplus connection to poetry? What is the rushed little examination on the screen, out of view? Screened from me, the nurse confirms she can see a vaguer noun, something like a burn. There is not a thing, but time, read, translated, where there might be form. It is there, or a picture of noise, not like a construct of noise, like its head. It's this way up. He is waving creatively at the elaborate so it's just legibility or esoteric reading styles. The matter is not interpreted, it is agile, easily switches between verb and noun. I could be creative, but I am beginning to think stuck, linguistically awkward to material or reality. Cannot have, have to be timely. Nothing has changed. I need to find my friend, the cat, the clown, so she can tell me the time. She has animation to give. I went to Ilford alone, was, handing a, was handed a pink laminated square. A staff was inserted. I felt hungry. Time was coming out slowly. I shouldn't have expected it all to happen at once, but I was told to expect it to happen all at once. They held up the staff. Read for someone. I feel like a comedy that's probably a lot of it there. It's still going on. And I can read a much, much shorter one now, um, which is probably a poem almost designed to be um, a nightmare for um, audio producers and <laughs> because it's a, it's a poem based on um, explosives uh, in speech. Um, so we'll see, how, <laughs> we'll see how this works with this microphone setup. So apologies in advance. 
shipbuilding. Prepare, the shops will close today. You nod and are licking envelopes in bed. Do both. The pending breath of withheld action. A unit economic comes but stopped, sits in the middle of a hip bone, clipboard, humpback, the soul of a shop boy. Thank you so much, Holly. That was brilliant. So Comic Timing is your debut collection. How did you find the writing and editorial process? Oh, yeah, that's a lovely time in my life to reflect on. Thank you for the question. The writing process was almost hilarious. It was a year of being very deliberately, uh, yeah, moving around different environments and um, atmospheres and taking kind of research objects from one place to another. So I was determined to write a lot of it whilst camping and wanted to kind of think about an object or kind of a concept like abortion and what does it mean to think about abortion while you're sleeping in a in a tent in um on the jurassic coast and thinking about like okay so that makes me think about uh active states of um preservation or uh, and then thinking about well, what if i take this and i go and sit in the archive of abortion protests in the Glasgow Women's Library and do some kind of much more closer um, research and documentation of the history of protest and the history of, of pushing for reproductive rights in this country, obviously rights not won and that it's being a kind of constant ongoing struggle as we can see in this this like really wanting to kind of dig into the, uh, the very gruelling and very hard work of this, these kind of histories. Um, and then take that and go somewhere completely different, some bog land in um, um, Ireland in County Offaly and, and carry all these kind of like research um, thoughts and feelings and take them to another place, that, you know, and, 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 and sit in states of kind of radical um, preservation again. And yeah, so there's lots of kind of looping and cycling um, mediums and spaces to think with with the kind of materials itself. But then obviously, while all that's going on, you've got lived experience, you've got work and you've got kind of life and like letting all that kind of feed in as well. And then the actual editing process was really remarkable and um, working extremely closely with Rachel Allen at Granton, my editor, who is just uh phenomenon in terms of editing you know she works so closely with the grain of the poem and just kind of inhabits the work with you and it feels like this sort of whole architecture of the book you are kind of in it with her and she thinks about she thinks about your she thinks about the poet's work on such a such a rich and enhanced level it's quite it's quite extraordinary so that was like a really lovely generous long process of working quite hard and editors you know they're 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 rare it's a rare and incredible skill so yeah it's nice I wonder why it was important for you then to have this nomadic existence while you were writing and and how that fed into to some of the images in in the collection yeah I think I just wanted to feel uh that the the form and everything 
all the poems have this kind of well, I want them to feel like almost like notes. Like the, there's something kind of wonderful about the live quality of a notebook that thoughts are still kind of quite active and quite unfinished and and still porous to um, everything around them, like climate, the kind of all different climates around them. Um, and I wanted to keep, maintain that that kind of the circuitry of thoughts and feelings in the moment and. Um, something about keeping things moving because the lots of the poem are about these kind of different kinds of habitation and metabolic states and lots of kind of protest and stillness and refusal but yeah I wanted to kind of kind of keep that mm, keep the ideas and keep the theories of that kind of moving and and interactive with lots of different kinds of surfaces and places in terms of the structure, it's um, in four acts. Mm. What made you want to structure it in this way? That was a, a, a decision with Rachel as well. I'm really, also as well as all these things, I'm really interested in the history of performance, but like the deep history of performance and and these acts. And I was thinking about comic and comedy in, in its its kind of ancient form as well as the 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 nature and the effects of comedy on everyday life and, and, and more contemporary comedy. But yeah, so thinking about a way to structure the book so it maybe feels more performative, it feels like a sort of show of some sort, but also keying into that sort of more um, ancient Greek feeling of, of, of theatre. And yeah, because comedy is... Um, I don't know, I feel like comedy is, for those moments, is something where life and performance seem to collapse into each other. You know, when you're on your own and you do something funny, like if you're on your own in a room and you fall over, it feels like a performance. It feels very kind of like, where's my audience? <laughs> otherwise, otherwise it feels too ridiculous to bear. So, yeah, so I'm kind of interested in those, um, in comedy as a way of making the body and your life feel like it is somehow dramatised in quite a kind of ridiculous way which is what comic timing is about it's that moment where it feels like your body is falls into a different narrative away from the the sort of master narratives of, of convention and um yeah that that of not just convention but just your own expectations or the kind of the grand master narratives of a life and feeling yourself not just as a kind of refusal but also as something quite kind of silly and funny you know this is kind of like what am I doing here and there's these moments so I want to kind of catch hold of those as well. Did using the narrative structure of timing and humour help the collection or did you find it restrictive in any way? Oh it's it, I don't I don't know if it's me to say, but I couldn't have done it any other way. Like, uh, Humour has always been so much part of my um, epistemology, as well as anything else. It's just how I kind of like navigate um, composition. It's, I think comedy and humour has got a lot to do with, it's got to do with how you lay out a line of poetry as well, it, even if it's not kind of 
typically funny it is always about timing it is always about expectations and sort of maneuvering expectations with not just the actual reader but your own expectations of language and flow so yeah I think it was the only it was it is my method and I think it is my methodology for basic conversations with people as well as as well as as well as creativity yeah in fact I think comedy is a really interesting critique of creativity or what creativity is because creativity is like comes from quite a well an almost kind of Christian kind of idea of production and, and comedy always seems to upset that and sort of miss yeah mischievously <laughs> disrupts that so that's something I'm always interested in you'll poems focus on you know experiences that are urgently real to many people you know paying rent mm. having abortions working That's my day just yeah. a typical day <laughs> constantly trying to find this this space mm. for themselves um and even more so now it feels these issues are perhaps more prevalent than even when you were writing the connection right. with the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the living crisis. Yeah. And and I feel on top of these, you know, these very political and, and economic issues, there's there's also the, the daily performances we also put on and which is almost like another transaction in itself. In comic timing, you you talk of a character, she's coming home after having an abortion and it's almost as if she also has to put on a performance at the time for the Uber driver mm. to make sure she gets a good rating <laughs> and to appear lovely. And then later on at a party, it's, you know, to perform for her friend because her friend thinks she's being weird and cruel otherwise. And I just I just wonder if while you're you're writing poems such as Comic Time and if it is a cathartic experience or if it's just mostly quite confronting. Mm, yeah, no, I... Yeah, lots to think about. I think the the hilarious clash, the kind of ri- ridiculous clash, ludicrous clash of service culture interactions that kind of just structure everyone's day and um, how you are integrated into these kind of like moments of service even when you're just on your own in a in a room there's some sort of service culture is at play and you or you're performing in it exactly and um yeah the way work follows you home <laughs> all these things kind of follow you around um and so I don't I don't think it is cathartic for me and I don't think I want it to be I don't think of poetry as um uh I think of poetry as to be conf- to to confront things, but also to to devise strategies for thinking, and that thinking is not always going to be pleasurable or easy. You know, in fact, it probably shouldn't be. I always get a bit polemical about this and go, "Poetry isn't a bubble bath." You know, it's like it is a it is it is hard and it is its point for me is to to find new methods for thinking to to kind of trouble things and to sort of speak back to a a kind of fluency that comes from hierarchies and powers they speak so kind of smoothly and, and dangerously and stupidly I feel like poetry's job is to 
agitate and push back and that is also to kind of confront fluency in your own language that's maybe kind of covering um yeah covering some sort of dangerous um thinking so stuff about comic timing that's also about like highlighting the banality of these things like making an experience that you're told is either like so huge and should be grieved or it's very difficult and you kind of never get over it and so actually it was just kind of banal experience it's kind of it's quite it's fine <laughs> but then it, it it becomes a trauma because because of how it's registered by people outside of you and then it then that and that and that repeats and it comes it keeps coming back so like on the other side of the Atlantic you just have this kind of discourse coming and it gets kind of picked up here that you're not allowed to be you're not allowed to do these things or like the idea that somebody would even have an opinion on it is just so kind of atrocious and and difficult so that kind of activates a kind of trauma and I think um poetry can't catharthize that it can only it can only kind of fight and do you think that is a reflection of the fact that we are generally always seen in in the context of other people's expectations of us whether that's through labor or reproductive mm. rights mm. i think expectations is a is a yeah it's a good word that's not a kind of um, there's not a moment where there isn't a kind of pressure or an expectation of what you should be doing or how you should be relaxing or how you should be even doing doing your self-care or what you should be looking at. Um, but, yeah, what was, sorry, what was your question? <laughs> I don't think I really <laughs> finished with a question. I just trailed off. Um, I suppose then it's taken a step almost away from just focusing on your poetry for a moment and widening mm. it out in a more I don't know, societal. I, I suppose it's, yeah, this context and maybe also as a woman, this need to perform, you know, be lovely, be nice, <laughs> be kind. And almost, again, a, a theme I felt that, you know, I, I touched upon in your collection was, you know, space, whether that's your living space, your working space. It's always as if someone's trying to make it a little bit smaller for you. Right. And and I feel, well, perhaps through your collection and, and poetry, it's actually making the space a bit bigger again. Like you said, that maybe that's poetry's mm. position. It's... yeah. Because, uh, yeah, a lot of these, I really like that, this idea that people, this this kind of, like, limitation or imposition on spaces, and that's always, I think I was talking about finding a kind of lyric that held the idea of tenancy and, and, and kind of being a renter as well, and tenancy just being, like, this kind of, uh, it's li the literal yeah. idea of tenancy, but also this, this kind of lyric feeling that is, can't settle or it can't kind of occupy space in the way that a property to lyric or a kind of personal kind of privatized lyric I would be able to um it you can't ha write in that kind of confidence I always talk about the word just women use the word just we all do now it's, I've just I was just I'm just seeing my name just doing that. because it's like everything is held just above a kind of settled moment and everything is uh, nothing can kind of occupy the kind of space in that way um 
and yeah, so we we ha- it's kind of it's it's infected our language. It's infected the way we describe ourselves. And it's like I'm just I'm just in your inbox for a tiny second, and then I'll get out. <laughs> but can you possibly do this thing with me? Um, it, and you know, so work time as this kind of pressure on your own, or this kind of extension, this kind of stretch of what a working of what a day is. It's like kind of it kind of gets inside your kind of waking hours and mutates it into something completely unlivable, completely unmanageable. And then rent time is kind of operating on you at that level as well. So I think I was trying to, and how can we help but kind of discover a lyric or speak, try and speak with a lyric that's trying to sort of negotiate those escape routes from those kind of pressures on time and space. Definitely. And just before we have another reading, I'd like to go back and have just a chat, just, (laughs) there she goes, Um, a chat about shipbuilding, which you read at the beginning. And it's really interesting with regards to your background with sound performance. And this poem especially has such a commitment to sound with the phonetics behind the P and the B sounds. And... I wonder what the effect of, you know, sound and voice and performance has on your writing and what it does mean to your work. Hmm. I'm so, first of all, I'm so glad that you picked up on that. Cause I, like, on, in the shipbuilding, I was looking, I was trying to um, make, I had a, a much longer list and there, there will be a kind of longer work that draws out all these words that I'm really interested in them that have in the middle, in the centre of the word is, 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 is P followed by B, which means you've got the kind of force of air uh, you would have with, with a with a with a percussive P or an ex, 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 a pulsive P is kind of held back and and then it kind of has to kind of mutate into the B kind of pressure, which I find yeah the phonetics mechanics of that really interesting and and try and kind of tether it conceptually to ideas of withheld labor or, or and, and you know so withheld action especially with a word like shipbuilding that's got this kind of in, incredible history around exactly that so it was almost too delightful to not plan to play with that and then find all these other words and you get this palette of words that are behaving in this kind of phonetic way that's kind of um arresting and and withholding and then and then um, expelling your, your breath and your effort as well, which is so. My background in in sound poetry and and working with sound on a much more much more conceptual way has um, fed into my work, and that's a great and it's a really nice to talk about this because I was thinking it is always about now for me. It's kind of there in the DNA of how I write, thinking about text as something that's a kind of sonic material um because of the way in which what you write is going to i kind of mechanize and and adapt how you enunciate or what you deliver in speech so and how you can manipulate and strategize that as a writer i find at the level of writing i you know you can write a word that is going, you can write a kind of sequence of words and structure it with line breaks and and all sorts of um, technique that's going to force the voice and force the breath into all these kind of awkward and audibly strange places. And that's prosody, but 
prosody is also kind of aesthetic and patterning. I'm, I'm also interested in how you can sort of force the voice and force the, the techniques of delivery into some really strange places. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I'm always trying or striving like the connection between doing that with what you're writing about so the themes that you're writing about or the themes that you're kind of sort of trying to communicate which are time work and 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 living pressures like how do you kind of network that into the into the phonetics is quite interesting for me I I think I read somewhere as well that you would go sometimes to listen to the archers being recorded and oh, yes. to hear the sound effects. And I, I just wonder, <laughs> where, where does this interest come from? Can you remember what what started? My um, early research was, and I got into poetry through much more kind of conceptual, very experimental writers like Bob Cobbing, who, who would write pure sound or um, a poem that was just a sort of long list of fish names. It's just brilliant. Or a poem that is literally the word grin over and over again. It's called grin. And you perform it and then you grin. <laughs> you can't help it. And then there's a kind of, this kind of temple of this word kind of is kind of structured sonically in the room and it, it's quite extraordinary. So this was my, this was my heritage as, as a writer. I, I kind of like... I feel like I kind of descend from, you know, because I was so influenced by it, such a fan, that that's how I came to writing. It wasn't through a more kind of traditional kind of instruction in terms of craft. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and I guess like people like Bob Cobbing were working on the back of the avant-garde and um, Dada and sound poetry from from Europe in the, in the 20s and 30s, which is always... A deeply political move to um, disrupt language in that way, to because it's a comment on the the powers around language. It's a it's a protest against language as a um, a public speech as a kind of um, mechanism of control. So it's a kind of act of deviance against that, which I've always been really interested in. Bob Cobbing was so good, so hilarious and cheeky. It's just my kind of. <laughs> And it, yeah, it was just a really pl and be playful. I can't. Yeah, I've got to say that, that Comet Time. It's a deeply serious poem, but some, <laughs> I also think it's a really playful poem, mm. and and that kind of has celebration of play at the heart of poetry as well. Um, definitely comes from the, that kind of scene of sound poets in the UK, and that who played with radio as well and had the radio. Um, workshop at the BBC so yeah I love, I love playing with radio and yes there is something hilarious if you go and watch the archers being filmed recorded not filmed <laughs> uh, and, but they have to make sounds like they're picking up they have to sound like they're picking up a sheep or opening a gate when they're not they're just a man they have to go like and make all these funny noises a bit awkward I just find it so brilliantly hilarious so, so yeah and that I don't know, the history of radio and the history of um, speech on radio is, is also really interesting to me. <laughs> on that note, we'd love to ask you to read a couple more poems. So I think we'd like to ask you to read Villette. And Villette, also, yeah. one of your poems is featured in our new August-September issue. 
would be great. Brilliant. Okay, I will find... I did mark it out, didn't I? Villette. In the novel, Villette, either I or Lucy Snow live and work in a girls' school that either she or I found in a small French town. She has nowhere, I have nowhere, and no thing in which to hide any of her few, my few, possessions. Her mattresses, my mattresses, and bedding in the dormitory where she sleeps, I sleep, are checked over daily, and she suspects, I suspect, that her, my desk, in the classroom, is also looked through. She has nowhere, I have nowhere, to hide a letter that was sent to her, to me, by Dr Graham, who she has a heavy and imaginative crush on, who I have a heavy and imaginative crush on. She invests, I invest, in the letter, a devotional adjuration that mismatches the friendly goodwill it was written with. I, Lucy, guess that the schoolmistress has snatched, read and then returned the letter to under her, my, bed. Lucy panics over her, my, lack of space and makes the eccentric decision to bury the letter in the garden grounds of the school. She folds the pages tightly. I fold the pages tightly, wrapped them in a silk handkerchief dipped in oil, curled them into a glass bottle and hermetically seal the bottle with wax. She buries the bottle. I bury the bottle under the roots of an ivy bush in an area of the garden that is haunted by either me or the ghost of a nun who was buried alive. In this gesture... In my gesture, Lucy Snow rejects the possibility of possessing the letter. She applies, I apply, a fantastical value to the letter. The letter passes into an earthed state of absence. I use, Lucy uses, burial as a way to disown the letter and to refuse being privately subjected by the letter. She instead... I, instead, ecstatically ritualise her poverty, my poverty, and her otherness, my otherness, to ownership of objects and evacuate the self into love. I'll read um, one of the poems that you've kindly published in the London magazine, um, which is from a new long, whatever it is at the moment, <laughs> a long series of small poems that I'm calling Cafes, um, I don't know if that's a sort of silly personal joke that only I understand um, about <laughs> in reference to cantos and thinking of, <laughs> thinking of the most kind of banal kind of reformation of the canto, the cafe. Um, but yeah, each um, sequence in the in the in the in the series will be a, a very short poem that is of and from and about a cafe. Café as think-tank metaphor for enterprise. False memory porn, collage damage, diffusion transfer. Everyone wants to be heard. I've got myself into something twisted and ongoing with her. 
I hear her, then there is a power between us. I accept her version of things. She needs to be heard. What she says changes everything. We thought we could give her rights. She spoke with them. She had no rights. We had no rights. Now she's twisted. Now everyone's lost. We start again. Tell us what you want. We can't give it. We fool her. She believes us. I tried for nothing. I find younger women to speak to me with so much confidence it fools me, easy and bizarre. I give way to them. I had no rights and we all fail. I abandon trying, but in doing so I create a power imbalance. To get, to get out of it, I have to ruin them a little. One perception per day. Now I'm the youngest and a tyrant. I've twisted everyone. I shout at the door when I panic, begin again, and there is no neutral sympathy. The poet's blank space. The third place that's neither home nor work. The arch over the sugar bowl that arrived alongside. It goes nowhere. How envious I am of myself in these moments. I had a thought about belonging to here and tried to explain it. Galette, I said. Thanks. Marvellous. Send. Thank you, Holly. First of all, if we if we can, to have a chat about your poem, Valette, um, where both the voice of the speaker and the actions of Charlotte Bronte's protagonist, Lucy Snow, mm. are unified and speak simultaneously. And Valette, I, I feel the, the novel, it, you know, it has been viewed as this proto-feminist text, mm. almost, <laughs> where... You know, throughout the book, we see Lucy Snow. It, it's almost shown her to become more independent. But actually, something I take from it as well is is the precarity of mm. her position, both financially and sexually. And and I wonder why you chose to close your collection with this poem. And if you can just tell us a bit more about what what you were trying to achieve with it. Yeah, and I love that. I love that. And I know you. I know you love the novel as well. But and it is, yeah, it's it is so fantastic. It's such kind of gothic, supernatural qualities to it as well, which I was really interested in. But I, I was just so besotted with that scene where she loved these letters so much, and she was so kind of produced by them in such a kind of erotic and 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 uh, um, intellectual way that she buried them <laughs> like the only thing she could think to do with it and I was thinking um of when you love something so much you just have to hermetically seal it in a wax bottle and bury it <laughs> that's like the only thing you can think to do it's so much about like she had no kind of so unpropertied and that that kind of my only way to kind of possess this is to completely um yes alienate myself from it and you know make it not a thing like bury it into this kind of unconscious space um, I mean, the whole arc of the novel of the novel has got a lot to say about that. But just that that kind of scene, I found really fascinating. And I was thinking about it in terms of Simone Weil's concept of decreation, where it's like you kind of achieve this sort of uh, relation to God and devotion through a sort of loss of ego, and this being a kind of really productive, generative process. Um, this disbanding of self. But that being, you know, decreative rather than destructive. Um, and I was thinking about that 
that moment of burying these letters in a bottle in that in that in, in that sense in a kind of decreative sense it was it's um like deeply romantic like almost like so poetic and there's a quite a few references and images around burial and you know literal preservation and archival um um drives and and but that being something related on a freudian level but also to to love and to a way to love and, and just finding that yeah finding that consoling we were talking about kind of catharsis but i also think there is a kind of yeah it was a really consoling thought in there as well something really defiant and in, yeah ongoing so in a way almost a political act in itself in terms of ownership right it's, even this in this romantic situation where the letters have come to her so she technically owns them yeah in a way. but then it's almost as if she's trying to give that ownership right in a way right because to own it assumes a self that can't be assumed either like so it's like it it recreates a a new possible self to not own it and I think that relationship between propertyed voices and own you know ownership we're talking about the kind of tenanted lyric and that kind of thing I think that's a real kind of it's a it's a really generative way to think about that that kind of there is no self when there's not property, that being a kind of brilliant kind of um, freedom. So I guess going back to the cafe poems, you discuss this utopia-like space, but in reality it's quite corrupt in its capitalist overtones. Right. These poems are different, completely different, as you say, in form to those in comic timing. Um, they're much more fluid, prosaic. Mm. Um, are you enjoying playing around with this form? Yeah, definitely. In between, I also wrote a very, very, very short. So it's almost embarrassing to call it a novel, but a, a novel. So it, it, I think my writing has kind of learnt to kind of stretch itself out into sentences, or so has kind of found that kind of more kind of prose line space through writing a novel. And yes, I was really determined because a lot of comic timing is is so almost so unstructured and so kind of intuitive a lot of the time um I did want to write in a form that was tighter and I thought okay just invent your own form (laughs) my own form looks a lot like a paragraph (laughs) um but I was thinking um, I was thinking about the aphorism or the kind of aphoristic way that Walter Benjamin writes in the arcades and the arcade and the cafe having quite a kind of similarity as I because I'm influenced by the idea of the arcade and his his project on that and thinking about how an aphorism and uh, a sort of short prose poetry wasn't really influenced by Luke Kennard's kind of style as well and thinking about how you can how you can what you can do with prose poetry is actually quite exciting and that's just kind of opening up to me as well but with a nod towards aphoristic anecdotal sort of capsulating things as well so you can fly between narrative and a little kind of detail of story to something more um abstract as well and something almost you can go back into sound as well and how you can kind of merge those things I find really exciting so yeah that's what I'm playing with at the moment and trying to kind of hold my writing down a little bit more and trying to make it behave in, in in something a little bit more consistent but 
yeah, space opens up within that kind of constraint. I'm, yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading that when it comes out. (laughs) Thank you for summarising what it is so well, because I would not be able to do that. (laughs) Cafes, you know, they're ketchup. What can I say? (laughs) And your novel, does it touch on the same themes or some of the same themes as comic timing? Definitely. It's a lot about motherhood and housing and um, being adjacent to the lives that seem on the outside to be more kind of inhabited um straightforwardly or 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 prosaically but so it's called the lodgers and it's about a kind of a lodger that's lodging with a single mum and a very young girl and that kind of just being on just on the outside of a domestic stability but then the domestic stability is upset by her um presence deliberately sometimes but um yeah accidentally just by being a kind of outsider of that so yeah really in this longer form are you still able to incorporate comedy and absurdity I do hope so (laughs) yeah I hope so I mean I think I think I think there's space in the kind of short novel as well for, for, for a lot of that um for a lot of quite similar stuff that you can get in a in a poem um the, the the kind of quickness and the timing of of comedy but also you can yeah you can you can mm, comment on reality or disrupt reality in, in that kind of form I think I think in a longer novel you'd probably have to answer to yourself a bit more of course there are some magnificently huge epic novels that are completely completely outrageously strange and so that that definition wouldn't hold up but yeah in my experience I, I enjoyed the form of a, of a of a short novel and now we'd like to move on to the part of the podcast where we have our literary SOS clinic. Oh, I love this. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. So yeah, we get to play doctor yeah. for, for a little bit. So <laughs> as you, I'm sure you're aware, writing and publishing can seem really, really overwhelming. So we just wanted to create a space where our listeners can voice their concerns and from somebody who's been through it. Mm. Yeah, so I will read a dilemma that has been sent in anonymously. An anonymous dilemma. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. And we'll, we'll ask you to give it, give it a little ponder. Um, so here we go. I've been producing poems torrentially for the past three to four years. Not quite. In the last year, the torrent has been dwindling slowly but surely down to a trickle. I seem to have been focusing more on redrafting than in creating new poetry matter, which by now is happening at a snail pace. I can't even get around to put two dozen of those poems together for a pamphlet. I have met with some success lately, but the question following that struggling has arised, what next? Or even, what's the point? Oh. <laughs> it is creation that I find truly exhilarating. Oh, I that it's a bit of a Torrential poems. Um, I, I feel like that in itself is a poem, isn't it? It's just yeah. published the SOS. Um, I mean, it's, I, I think when I, you know, I, I, I teach poetry, you know, I've been working in a university for years with um, students working on their their practice or sort of putting a practice together and and 
learning to think of themselves as writers in, in various ways. And so there are lots of ways to think about that. If someone's stuck and someone feels like they're running out of work or things to say or ways to write, I just will just stop and just read for ages. And that's part of part of your practice is to be a reader of poetry um, and to respond and to be in, in dialogue with this poetry. So and it always brings you out of a period of feeling stuck it, it's some, you just discover something that will always kind of maneuver and activate your thinking in a, w- a new way so there's being stuck is just your brain telling you it's time to read I think um but I think this 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 writer this poet sounds like they're doing amazing things and there's always a point to it because well, I don't know. I mean, we can't know. We can't know. <laughs> but there are different... Years have their different paces, you know. Um, my friend shared a studio, and I will never forget this. She shared a studio with an older artist. And she was, you know, because we're kind of in a very high, highly productive generation that are kind of, kind of forced to kind of work all the time, and we can't really, really turn off. But he was a little bit older and he would just come into the studio and he's like, yeah, some years you make something, some years you don't. And I just remember thinking, God, the grace, the gra- the, what kind of achievement of grace have you reached when you can just be that kind of like chill? <laughs> but it, it's something to really aspire to, I think, to re- recognise the speeds and tempos are a thing in themselves to to, to react to and a, and a kind of different, a different modes of contemplation and engagement of, are really valuable whatever they are um so that kind of frenzied period is great you don't you don't want to be that kind of writer forever you don't want to be producing that the kind of writer that there are some brilliant writers that do it so i'll always kind of caveat what i say but some people over produce and it's a bit like oh really you again (laughs) (laughs) do you need another book by you (laughs) i think we do (laughs) and i've got those three on my bookshelf and i haven't got to it um and yes so it sounds like they're fine Mm -hmm. Off the top of your head, can you think of any poets or writers that might be a good go-to to to kind of give you a bit of a a nudge back into for me? Yeah, any recommendations? No, it's a great it's a great thing because you do have that's a good kind of solution to that question as what before it's you do have your companions and these kind of people that you'll just kind of. You know, you just grab the collected off the shelf and you're like, come on, show me. And, um, yeah, so Tom Rayworth is a really difficult writer, but for me he's a writer that, well, actually, I will just kind of backtrack on that as well. I think he's seen as difficult, but I think he's a brilliant writer. And um, and the writer Bernadette Mayer, the American poet, I think she just always brings me back to where I want to be with my writing is really extraordinary massive back catalogue as well and so rooted in um experimental methods and and you know was a a teacher and there was something about that kind of generosity that's still there in her lyric in in kind of the way she frames what she's doing as she's doing it you always kind of come back to it um so yeah um can you cut out the bits where I'm going, um, <laughs> what poets are there? Many. <laughs> that always poets. happens though. When someone's like, what's your favourite book? I'm like, have I read a book? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I was always, 
I think the poet um, Vani Capaldeo is, is is wonderful, and you know, kind of got me into poetry, and will always return to these these writers and political writers, um, like Sean Bonney. Sometimes, if I think my writing's getting a bit polite, I will just go and remind myself, and and um, and were you lucky enough to cross paths with Sean? Definitely, yeah, yeah, it was. Um, paths, floors, <laughs> yeah, corridors. Um, we were both actually doing our PhDs together at Birkbeck, but um, and there was a time in in London that felt like there was a really interesting, really wonderful scene around um, a reading series run by Jeff Hilson called Crossing the Line, and that's kind of that was my introduction to the London poetry scene. I was very, I was very young. It was before my MA, but um, Jeff, who I did my PhD did my MA with um was running this room above a pub reading series this kind of classic London reading series um and just saw loads of poets like poets my age and younger and, and poets that have been working for years and around for years um Maggie O'Sullivan is definitely another poet I would who I always have to sort of and she's a really good example of someone who was just so dedicated to sound and, and f- working with speech as a, as a kind of fragmentary material as a really kind of sharp and 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 agitating material um and it's just so wonderful and witchy and brilliant in all the things she does so yeah saw people like that there um yeah there was a really nice there was a really politically switched on very outside the mainstream like there was no talk of prizes there would have been no i didn't know what the um what the Eric Gregory award was until I was way too. I, was, I thought it was one of Jack Underwood's friends. I was like, one of Jack. Why are you talking about like your friend Eric? I didn't even know it was. It was so outside that, and it was all. It was, you know, it was a kind of um, leading on from Bob Cobbing's um, Writers Forum. It was very much about kind of um, much more DIY spaces and just about the work itself being just being enthusiastically experimental and and part of that kind of yeah political community and is there mm. still that space do you feel these days I don't know I don't know I'm sure yes there definitely is there's an amazing um um people putting on amazing there's out else um that's run by Tom Compton and Alex oh god Alex I'm so sorry I've forgotten your surname mm. but um I blame my COVID brain, but Out Else is an amazing outfit that just, they also do um, the Poetry Emergency Fund, um, the Poets Emergency Fund, which is this brilliant antidote to prizes. I think it's this, it's this kind of emergency fund for anyone who identifies as a poet who needs some money. And it's just, it's, you know, it's a really kind of amazing response to really brilliant and generous and radical response to uh, a cost of living crisis, but also just this idea that all this kind of imperial money around literature and success and professionalism, and I just think it's an amazing kind of um, response to that, but also just holding people together in this really brilliant way, and they do a really wonderful um, pamphlet called Lud Gang as well. And the other side of that, in the kind of more um, spoken word, like really wonderful um, Anthony Naxaguru's doing Outspoken. It's just such a 
beautiful scene. There's such an amazing audience mm. and community. So yeah, and it's so established as well, but it, it, it feels so energized as well. And all the kind of young, um, brilliant writers that are coming through that. So yeah, they're kind of, maybe some people would see them kind of up at opposite ends of a, yeah. of the of the landscape. But for me, they've, yeah, that's just part of things that make me feel quite excited and hopeful. Well, we're happy to end on that hopeful. Yeah. It's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, you've been such great company. You we've too. Thank really you. Really enjoyed yeah, thank it. Thank you so much. And please do read Holly's cafe poems. They're available both in our August September issue and also on our website. And definitely pick up a copy of Comic Timing, which we'll link to in the show. In notes. the show notes. Um, where can our listeners find you, Holly? In the world. I mean, if they wanted to come and get me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <Come on>. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I sometimes lurk around Twitter, unless I need to um, turn it off so I can do some work. But yeah, I hope to be back on Twitter soon. Um, I work at the University of Essex, so if anybody's interested in coming to work with me on a PhD, PhD that's, a, that's completely um, irresistible, then please come and find me there. Um, I live in Essex. Um, I come to London as much as I can. And, um, yeah, I lurk on Instagram as well. That's okay. Is that the kind of thing you mean? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Just wait, wait wherever you look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, thank Holly. You. It's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, and thank you, everyone. We'll catch you next time. You can find us um, on Instagram at The London Magazine, on Twitter at The London Mag, on Facebook, we are The London Magazine, and online, we are www.thelondonmagazine.org. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.